Please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, as we talk today about our gospel focus as a church. Years ago, when Joy and I were in our first year of marriage, we drove 30 minutes out of our college town to find a good, healthy, biblical church. And so we'd make that trip. <clears throat> and we, uh, we loved that church. And we would invite friends to go with us to church. And I remember one couple we invited to go to church with us. We said, hey, would you like to come with us this Sunday? We talked about our church. And our friends said, yes, we'd love to come, but we don't want to go to a church with a yelling preacher. That was their one thing. Don't want a yelling preacher. And we were able to say to them, listen, don't worry about that. Pastor Rick is wonderful. He's, he's passionate. He can be intense, but he never yells. And he never did until that Sunday. When our guests came, Pastor Rick went off, and he was preaching loud. His face was red. There was some anger in it. The content was as good as usual, but something was different that day. It turns out, we learned later, as new members, we didn't know it, but there were problems in the church, apparently, and I think even on the staff, some kind of division. And so he preached that good truth again, but with a lot more emotion that Sunday and some of the Sundays thereafter. Needless to say, our friends never came back. <laughs> For a second visit. It does illustrate for us how important preaching is, isn't it? And people come looking for different things in the preaching of a church. I remember when my kids were writing term papers in school, sometimes they'd complain about that. Oh, I have to write this big paper. And then I would remind them playfully. I said, you know, every week I write the equivalent of a term paper, followed by an oral presentation every week. And unlike you with one person grading, I have hundreds of people grading the oral presentation every week. And what makes it tricky is everybody has a different measure of the grading. Well, I bring that up because Paul is aware that the Corinthians have been grading him and his ministry, even grading how he preached among them. And their question, as they compared Paul to others, is why isn't Paul more impressive? Why isn't Paul sounding more sophisticated like some of these others? And so Paul here in 1 Corinthians 2 is going to remind the Corinthians of the one goal he had when he went to Corinth. And that one goal shaped his message and it shaped his methods. And so we're going to hear him explain how and why he ministered in Corinth when he was there. And we're going to see the, the message of God that he carried, the wisdom of God that he carried, and also the power of God that he relied upon. So let's talk about those three things together this morning. First of all, the message of God, picking up now in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, <clears throat> but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Notice how Paul here explains his mission to Corinth that took place some four years earlier. He lets them know that he was very intentional about what he said and what he did during that time, that year and a half that he ministered there. Notice with me that Paul was clear on his message. And he was clear on his message because he knew whose message he carried into Corinth. He says here he carried the testimony 
of God. I came to you, Corinthians, with God's message. Now, what is that message? He came proclaiming the gospel. Don't you love verse 2? For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul already told us in chapter 1 that he knew when he came into Corinth in every place that there will be those who would hear that gospel message and declare it foolishness. Paul knew well the Greek mind and he knew well the Jewish mind. He knew that the Jewish mind would hear of a crucified Messiah and say, well, that's just a contradiction. <clears throat> you can't have a Messiah who's crucified. And so that would be foolishness to the Jewish mind and, and Paul's fellow Jews. To the Greek mind, he knew that this would not sound sophisticated enough. A bloody Jewish Messiah, how is that sophisticated? How is that powerful? We don't want it. But notice here, Paul said, even knowing all that, what was the one message I brought? Christ and him crucified. He was clear on his message, but he was also clear on his methods. Specifically on the methods he refused to use there in Corinth. He did not want his approach to ministry to distract from that message. Again, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Paul, knowing the Greek mind there in the first century Roman Empire, he knew their fascination with great, high-sounding wisdom. He knew they would be enamored with impressive personalities and powerful public speaking. And Paul said, I'm intentionally not going to employ any of that. One scholar described kind of how it was in those days to help us relate to it. You know, in our day, people are very much enamored with athletes and actors and other celebrities like that. But in the first century Roman Empire, they were enamored with public speakers. He writes about it here. This one scholar says they are called sophists. Debating others and giving flashy speeches was both a science and an art, a polished skill that required sharp wit, deep knowledge, impeccable logic, stylish use of words, and firing passion, whether the topic involved politics, law, religion, or business. The most successful rhetoricians had devoted followers, loyal students who would pay handsomely in exchange for discipleship. The more convincing and moving was the rhetoric the more paying students one would have. And the way one expressed oneself was at least as important as what one said. Style and substance both mattered immensely. And the scholar continues, Paul knew that the Corinthians expected him to do so when he entered Corinth. But if Paul mimicked the flashy, persuasive, rhetorical styles of the day, he would risk impressing people with his style rather than powerfully communicating the gospel message. Now, we know Paul, Paul was not opposed to using different approaches when he came into a city, but he was very selective about what approaches he used so that he would not confuse the message. He wanted people to hear about a crucified Savior who was raised from the dead. That's what he wanted them to hear because there's the power of the gospel. So he didn't want to have a contradictory method where people would be enamored more with him than that beautiful, gracious message of God. So Paul was intentional. He says, I decided when I came there to avoid lofty speech and that high sounding wisdom of the world. And so maybe you've heard people talk before. You ever heard somebody, they seem to be reaching deep into the thesaurus for a big word to use when a simple word would have worked just fine. And when somebody does like, like why would you pull that word? 
Why are you doing that? Are you trying to show off? Are you, are you trying to brag about something there? And Paul said, I'm not going to play that game. And listen, Paul was brilliant, wasn't he? If you doubt that, read Romans again sometime, maybe this week. You think, this man was brilliant. He had a lot he brought to the table, but he's not there in Corinth. He's reminding them, I didn't come in there to impress you. I could probably match toe for toe these other speakers. Not interested in that because I have one singular goal. Verse 2, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then verse 5 tells the purpose. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So do you hear Paul's confidence in that gospel message? His mindset is the gospel doesn't need my help. I don't need to dress it up. My powerful speaking abilities are not needed. The gospel is enough. The gospel is the power of God. In fact, that's what he said to the Romans in Romans 1.16. Paul said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul was clear on his message. And as a church family, you and I need to be clear on our message as well. Paul was clear on his methods. You and I need to be clear on our methods as well. So what is this gospel that Paul had so much confidence in? Oh, it's the message that there is a God and he is good. He's holy like we heard about earlier. And he looked at broken humanity that sinned against him in rebellion. And rather than condemn all of them as every one of us has been worthy, he sent his son to rescue us. What God is like this? Who can compare with him? We were right to sing that. And so Jesus came, left heaven, born of a virgin, lived absolutely perfectly every moment of his life with the purpose of going to the cross where he would give his righteous blood to make atonement for all of our sins. Oh, it's about Jesus and the cross. And he was raised up on the third day. And do you remember the promise of scripture? If you believe in him, you will not perish in hell, but instead you'll have everlasting life. You'll be forgiven. You'll be declared righteous. You'll be adopted into the family. You'll live with the Lord forever in his home. That's the gospel. That's powerful. And Paul said, that is the message. Everything else I'll teach will point back to that because that is the message. Listen, that's our message as well. But we might say, but what, what if we lived in a time though, where people didn't like that message? What if we lived in an era where people said, well, that's just too simplistic, that message. What if we lived in a time where people said, that's just too narrow. That's just foolish. What would we do? We'll keep preaching that message. Don't you love how Paul modeled that? I know that this is, seems like foolishness to those who are perishing. I know to the Greek mind and the Jewish mind, they say this is foolish. So what does he do? I determined I'd know nothing but Christ and him crucified, regardless of what the response might be by some. And so as a church family, as we apply that, oh, we will stay on this message joyfully, confidently on the message of the gospel until Christ comes again. But plenty of churches have moved off of that message, the gospel. I think really if you were Google churches today in town and you just went at random to some church you Googled, there's a, there's a strong likelihood that you would end up in a church that's not going to preach the gospel this morning, even in our area. Thank the Lord for other sister churches that are preaching the gospel. Thankfully, that's a growing number, I believe. But there are plenty that are not teaching the gospel. And instead of this beautiful gospel of God's grace, people are preaching other things. And here's some of the examples of what you might hear out there. First of all, a morality message. Some churches have moved off of Christ and him crucified and their message is simply be nice. That's all we want. That's all God's just be nice. Do good. 
Be kind to your fellow man. Love one another. And that, that's the only message. No cross, no Christ in that. Some churches have moved off the gospel and they've gone to what is called the prosperity gospel. Once again, no cross, no need to repent of sins, but here's the message. You can get rich and you can be healthy if you believe and say the right things. In fact, they really have gone into this idea of manifesting. That, and they'll try to find a biblical basis for it, though it's totally unbiblical, but they'll try to go back to creation. Hey, our God spoke things into existence and you're one of his children, so you can speak things into existence, though the Bible doesn't teach you to do that. And the idea that you can just speak health into your life, you can speak prosperity, you say the words, it's going to come to you. That's not the gospel. They've set down the gospel that's powerful, that's saving for prosperity gospel. Some churches have let go of the gospel and they come to talk about climate and social justice and things like that. This week, someone reminded me of a liberal church in the Charlotte area that I used to drive past on occasion when visiting family there in Charlotte. And I thought, oh yeah, let me just see what's going on at that church. I wasn't surprised that it was way off the rails. But so I watched part of the, part of the worship service from Mother's Day and uh, I got to hear the pastor there talking. He's a gifted enough communicator. But then in the service, after his message that was not about the cross or anything related to that, there was a part of the service where a family got up and gave their testimony where they affirmed the world's view on sexuality. There was a testimony in the service, a significant portion given to promoting what the Bible calls immorality in the worship service. Then there was a time in the service where a nine-year-old girl, I think she was nine, she gets up there and she talks about global warming. She says the earth has a fever and we all have to do our part. And she said a few other things off of the gospel of Christ that Paul said, I would never, I'd never move away from. Here's a church, a Baptist church, long since left the gospel. And then some churches leave the gospel and to, to preach politics instead. And that can go on either side of the spectrum. It can be left-wing politics, that becomes their message, or it can be right-wing politics there. And we're not saying that politics doesn't matter. These elections matter a lot. We see that. So we're involved, but hey, listen, it's not our message. It's not our hope. Jesus Christ is the hope of this nation and every soul in it. Jesus Christ is the hope of Brazil. Jesus Christ is the hope of India. Jesus Christ is the hope of China. And so we, we are doggedly determined with joy to preach Christ and not come off of that message. We must keep that singular message. But listen, also our methods need to be carefully chosen. And of course, we're going to try different ministries, different programs through the years. You have to adapt those as times move along. But thoughtfully, does this does this method, does this approach, this program, does it help us point to a crucified and risen Savior? We only want to use those methods. So even, even how we preach and teach needs to do that. You ever heard one of those sermons and the pastor, he's loud and nothing wrong with being loud. That's personality. That's cultural sometimes. Nothing wrong with volume. But, but sometimes you can see a preacher and he's preaching. He's kind of showboating up there. And you think, I'm having a hard time seeing a crucified, risen Savior through all that theatrics going on. I don't know. What do I do with all that? I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing Jesus through all of that. We, we just want to be thoughtful about what we do. One megachurch out west a number of years ago imploded. Now, the gospel they preached was really good. This church was actually praised for its good theology. People used to go to seminars to hear the preacher talk about good theology. But the methods were unbiblical. And so as it, as it came to pass, as people look back into what caused this church to implode... It was character issues and it was bad methods. By the way, the church in its heyday that I'm referring to had 12,000 people attending at one time in 15 different satellite locations in four different states. 
teaching really good truth, but all the methods. In the sermons from this very super gifted man, sometimes in the sermons there would be profanity, and uh, it'd be anger and profanity, and people excused it like, well, you know, he's out west, they do things differently, he's just kind of fitting in the culture, it's edgy, it's edgy. But he was abusive from the pulpit to people, abusive outside of the pulpit to people, and eventually it all imploded in that church, once running 12,000 on a Sunday, doesn't exist anymore. The message, critically important, Paul models for us here, hey, the methods also very important. They need to be in harmony with the gospel message. I love this. Paul modeled this so well where he says, I'm not going to try to impress you, Corinthians. I understand the culture, but I can't do that. Look what he did instead. Verse three. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. One translation says, not using clever and persuasive speeches. So, He'd, he'd rather have the Corinthians think less of him. Well, that was ordinary. Well, that was weak. That's nothing like the other guys. But we did hear about Christ. We did see Jesus. And so we have a message, the message of God, the gospel. But now Paul talks about the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God. We have the message of God. We also need to operate by the wisdom of God. Verse six, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So Paul says, the reason I'm not going to operate by the wisdom of this world, it's because I've come to know the true wisdom of God. I'm not going to use the wisdom of the world because I have the superior wisdom of God. And here, once again, Paul contrasts these two wisdoms, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of God. Verse six, he talks about the wisdom of this age. In verse seven, the wisdom of God. Let's talk about the wisdom of this age. And you might want to underline that, this age there's a wisdom of, of a generation, and Paul was dealing with it, this, this idea that the Greeks would have. It reminds me of our time here. We live in a culture where we would say, oh, there's a wisdom of this age. This current so-called wisdom didn't exist 20 years ago, 30 years ago, certainly not 50 years ago, but there's a generation here with very confident views that they're demanding, and we say, well, that's, that's the wisdom of this age. I'm not, I'm not going to go with that. Listen, with a lot of the notions being taught to us, these things are being concocted, these convoluted ideas that are being forced on you. You should begin to train your mind to ask when people tell you things that are contrary to God's word. You should ask the question, well, who says? Like in your own head, like when you hear that stuff, who, who says? What makes that true? What's the source of that new dogma that's everywhere now? And would I really set aside the wisdom of God for that, verse six, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So why would I not follow them? Because those espousing these things, those who are of this age, they are doomed to pass away. Paul said the same thing back in chapter one, verse 18. There's a wisdom of those who are perishing. By all means, we don't follow them. 
We don't want to follow their advice on anything. By the way, this is one of the reasons I find it hard to enjoy much secular music. Now, not all secular music's bad. By the way, I used to think so. So Jesus saved me in high school. I left all my old music behind, only Christian rock music, and I was loving it. And uh, I was pretty legalistic on this point. If you listen to any secular music, I would think, you know, as strong as I was. And, uh, and so, but then I got convicted because I thought, you know, actually I'm not being consistent because the song Happy Birthday is a secular song. And I thought, okay, so just these are things rolling in my head. I guess I'm not being consistent. And the Andrew Griffith Show, we watch a lot. They whistle in a song there at the beginning that's not a Christian song. And so I thought maybe, maybe I'm not being consistent here. But I still have trouble enjoying much secular music because I get a bit annoyed with the message. Sounds good, amazing talent. But then when they start singing about love, for example, they don't, they don't know what they're talking about. This is annoying. What kind, what kind of wisdom is this guy's on his fifth breakup and he's singing to me about romantic love. Just, just a little bit annoying. Again, once again, illustrating that I'm weird. I understand it. But who are the, who are the rulers of this age? Who is it that's promoting the wisdom of this age? Well, we would talk about cultural influencers. So people coming out of Hollywood, people coming out of Washington with a message, people coming out of Nashville and New York with messages, large social media empires, massive corporations. They have a message that they're preaching to us and athletes are talking to us about their views, artists, actors, business tycoons. Yes, the politicians. But again, what does God say about them with their wisdom? They're doomed to pass away. We don't follow them. 1 John 2, 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So gratefully, humbly, and confidently, we reject the passing wisdom of this age and instead, we take up the wisdom that is the wisdom of God. Verse 7. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Notice three things here. First of all, God's wisdom is eternal wisdom. Did you notice the contrast between the wisdom of this age we just talked about and how Paul describes the wisdom of God? He says this was decreed before the ages. So you really have a choice. What wisdom? Do I want the wisdom of this age, newly invented, or do I want the wisdom of God, which is from before the ages, the wisdom that was in the, the heart and mind of our omniscient, eternal God? Paul says, oh, we're decreeing, we're taking the, 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 the wisdom of God that's been decreed to us that's before the ages. But notice this, God's wisdom also has been disclosed to us. What was previously hidden in the mind of God has been disclosed to his people. This is what Jesus talked about in Matthew eleven twenty five. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, listen, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so we're just talking about 
our wisdom that we're receiving, a wisdom from God from before the ages. And this is the wisdom that was previously hidden, disclosed to us that, notice, we get to impart to other people. God's not intending for us to just to keep it to ourselves. Verse 7 again, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So there is a real wisdom that we possess, God's wisdom. Let me ask you, which wisdom are you embracing in your life? Which wisdom is shaping your life, the passing wisdom of the age or God's eternal wisdom? How about this question? Which wisdom are you espousing to other people? We're in this graduation season and people are going to graduation ceremonies. We'll be going to one next week and our daughter graduating high school. And I'm going to hear a valedictorian give an address. And it's going to be the same address I've probably heard every time I've ever been to a graduation. There'll be common themes. You can, you can anticipate. You could fill in the blanks. But it'll be like, follow your dreams. Follow your heart. You've got this. That'll be the wisdom coming from this age. But listen, is that, is that your message to graduates in your life? Just follow your dreams. Just follow your heart. You got this. Is that the message? Or do you have this message? No, no, don't, don't, don't follow your dreams. Follow your Savior. Don't follow your heart. Follow his heart. Follow his will. Not this message. You've got this. But why not take them to John chapter 15 where Jesus says, listen, if you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Wouldn't you want to take your graduate to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. And so Paul was clear on his message, so should we. He was clear on his methods, so should we be. Clear on the wisdom of God rather than the passing wisdom of the world. But notice he's also clear on the power of God. Through the Holy Spirit, he talks about the power of God. Here's his confidence. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one commends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him and he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Paul explains here the only reason why he's in the truth, the only reason why these Corinthians to whom he's writing are in the truth is because of an amazing work of the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who allowed them to understand the things that had been previously hidden to them. And the only way other people are going to ever understand and respond to the gospel is through that same Holy Spirit. It's a reminder for us, we're not going to change anybody by our charisma. Certainly not going to change anybody by our anger. We're not going to change anybody by our debate skills. Our role is important. We're to share the gospel. Read Romans 10 again. 
You know, how will they hear without a preacher and all that? And they, they need to hear. We need to be proclaiming. But isn't it the Holy Spirit who's going to bring life and open up eyes and draw people to the Savior? I find verse 11 interesting. Paul illustrates this here. He says, really, nobody understands a person but the spirit of that person, the, the, your soul inside of you, that's, that's who knows you. And he says, same way, you can't really know God unless the spirit of God reveals himself to you. But how about that? You, you have a way, if you choose to, to disclose yourself to other people or not, if you keep quiet. It makes me think about my mom and my stepdad. My mom, after the divorce of my dad, some years later, married my stepdad. He was a tall, silent type guy, a former Marine. And Kenneth was a, was a good man. He was a good stepfather for me. But my mother married this strong, silent type, and then she wanted him to talk. And so she wanted to get to know him, you know, and Kenneth's kind of quiet. So I remember times like this, she'd say things like, Kenneth, what are you thinking about? And he'd say, nothing. And uh, <laughs> apparently that was true. Like, not, not thinking about a whole lot at this particular moment, nothing. But one of the funnier times was when my mom saw him and he looked angry. My, my stepfather's resting expression was kind of angry looking, I guess where the lines fell from all those years of being a Marine and business and stress. He just didn't look happy if he wasn't intentionally smiling. And so my mom said to him one day, Kenneth, are you angry? He said, no. And so a little bit later, she asked, Kenneth, are you sure you're not angry? No. A little bit later, she asked again, Kenneth, are you sure you're not angry? He said, I'm starting to get angry. <laughs> I've never forgotten that. And I love how mom was just wanting to get to know her man. Like, could you just disclose something? What's going on in there? Aren't you glad? Here's our gracious God, all these mysteries hidden in him. If he wanted to keep it to himself, but he has disclosed things to us by his spirit. He's made things. known. In fact, the Bible you have on your lap there, that's, that's an expression of that. Here's the Holy Spirit who has inspired these words through the apostles and the prophets that we would know what God's like. He did not have to do that. He's so gracious and it's by the Spirit of God that you came to understand the Lord and you came to want to follow Jesus. Where did that want to come from? Oh, it's from the Lord. So we think, well, why do we see the world so differently from our neighbors? Oh, it's the miraculous work of the Spirit of God in us. Verse 10, these things God has revealed to us by the Spirit. So listen, no pride to us. It's not that we figured it out. It was God mercifully causing us to see what we could not have seen when we were lost. Verse 12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. But what about those who are in unbelief? Why can't they see this? Verse 14 explains it. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, listen, and is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So that has big implications for our evangelism and our missions. Again, our message is critical. We've been sent with the gospel, this gospel that's powerful. But all while we're sharing the gospel, we're depending on the Holy Spirit to do that, that dramatic work of opening up eyes and causing people to desire after Christ. I think back to my own testimony in those years before I became a believer in church some of the time. And, and I know in at least one of the churches we attended that I would hear the gospel every time. And I'm sure they taught it faithfully, but I just could not get it. And so I remember they would talk about Jesus. And you know what I heard? Aisle, walk an aisle. It was a traditional um, 
invitational times at the end of the service, and they have an invitation hymn and, and a lot of emotion in that. And so I heard them talk about Jesus, but I didn't get Jesus from it. I got, you just need to walk down front there during that song if you want to go to heaven. And so I did that religious exercise, didn't meet Jesus. Another thing they talked about was baptism. You need to be baptized. They talked about Jesus correctly, but somehow in my head, I just heard walk an aisle and get baptized. And I did th those two things. Never met Jesus that no fault of the church. It was all me not getting it. But then sometimes later, as you know, through my brother's testimony and through the word of God, all of a sudden I'm now getting it. What happened? The spirit of God in his timing causing me to see what I could not see on my own. Our confidence is in the power of God and not in ourselves. And then notice how Paul here concludes this grand statement. We have the mind of Christ. How did that happen? We who are, who are just as confused as our present world is right now, maybe confused in other ways, but we were just as lost, just as blind. But now it can be said of us that we have the mind of Christ. What happened? Oh, this is the amazing work of the Holy Spirit, drawing us to Christ, now working inside of us through his spirit indwelling, causing us to think more like Christ. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, to have the mind of Christ means to look at life from the Savior's point of view having his values and desires in mind. It means to think God's thoughts and not think as the world thinks. You and I now, through Christ, through this gospel, through the working of the Spirit, have a, a new operating system. And we no longer want to be conformed to the world, but we want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And can I remind you, pretty sure I'm going to remind you next week anyway, but can I remind you, be in the Word of God that you can continue to grow this mind of Christ. It would be a shame to be said of you that you have the mind of Christ because of the working of the Spirit, but instead of operating by His mind, you operate by the values of the world. It's very critical in these days, with so many messages coming inbound to all of us, to pull aside daily, open up the Scriptures, and then read, Lord, I want to hear your mind. Where am I going to get that in this world? I need to go to your Word. In fact, if it's been a while since you've been in the Word consistently, why not start in the New Testament? Really pick anywhere there. Old Testament's great too. But if it's been a while, start in the New Testament. Just read a chapter or two a day systematically through a book of the Bible that you might, you might understand what is God's wisdom. I want to walk in that wisdom and I want to share this gospel with other people. So today, let's embrace that singular message of God, the gospel. Let's dedicate ourselves once again. Lord, I want to walk in your wisdom and not in the passing wisdom of this age. And Lord, I want to depend on your power not anything that I can manufacture, but Lord, I want to trust in your power, the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. While our heads are bowed, maybe you're one in the room, and today's the first day you've understood this good news. You're, you're understanding maybe for the first time that you have sinned and you need Jesus, the one who died for you to save you. That's, that's the working of the Holy Spirit. And today, would you respond to the Holy Spirit's work by putting your faith in Jesus? trusting him, asking him even now, Lord, would you save me? Would you be my savior? Would you be my Lord? Would you give your life to Jesus today? Let me pray for us. God, we thank you as always for your word. We love the truth of your word. We want to be shaped by it. We want to, we want to know you better through your word. Thank you, God, that you have disclosed yourself, your wonderful wisdom to us by your spirit, and in particular through your word. We want to, we want to live closer to you, more in love with you than ever before in light of what we've just heard in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.